Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the second to last episode of the Running Explained podcast for 2022, aka season two. Psyched to have you here. This week we're doing an old-fashioned throwback to a listener Q&A. For those of you who don't know me, my story, I actually started my podcast because what I originally been doing was these Instagram live Q&A sessions every week, which meant I was just sitting in front of my, my phone for like... 60 to 90 minutes answering questions that had I'd like printed out on a piece of paper that people had submitted the week before and then in my brain I realized you know what this format is like way better for a podcast and so actually the first couple episodes of the podcast were the audio that I had ripped from my Instagram live uh, episodes my Instagram lives way back when and way back when I mean last year um, obviously I the production values have increased greatly since then but uh, that's a little the little story and why I get nostalgic about doing Q&A's because that's kind of how I started doing what I do is people would ask me questions and I would give them answers and away we would go so you guys submitted some really great questions there are some things that may feel like you've heard me talk about this before there may be some things that actually I know that I've never really discussed in depth before and I'll tell you why but first before I get started want to let you know kind of a, an update about the Running Explained offerings. I'm super excited for 2023. Uh, not only do I have six unbelievably amazing, talented running coaches on my coaching team that you can work with one-on-one, but our new group coaching offering, our, my, it's me, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you can work with me in the group setting. Coach Elizabeth is launching. Registration opens next week, Monday, December 26th. The cool thing about this group coaching uh, for the half marathon and the full marathon, you can sign up to do group coaching for either distance. At this point in time, those are the only two distances that are being offered for group coaching, um, is that group coaching is rolling admission. There is no deadline to register by. There is no like, uh, oh, you need to run your race on this date. Nope. The group is ongoing. You join when you are in your timeline of when you're going to run your race and you go through the weeks of course curriculum, the bi-weekly group calls, the community support, uh, and then you run your race, right? So there's no like waiting around or like, oh, I don't know, the group doesn't really start around. So nope, none of that. Rolling admission all throughout the year. You just sign up and join when your race is actually the timeline that your race is happening on. So uh, along with group coaching, of course, we always have one-on-one personalized, individualized coaching available with any one of my amazing six coaches. I'm not personally taking on new clients right now, but in 2023, I expect I will have a couple spots opening up. And of course, you can always join the training family by getting a training plan for Running Explained PDF download on my website 2023. Those plans will also be available on both Training Peaks and Final Surge, so stay tuned for that. Enough of the update. Let's get to the good part. All right. <clears throat> this first question uh, actually has kind of uh, echoes of what we talked about last week in the episode about losing your period, kind of stuff we talked about about hormones. This is a great question. 
Um, the question is, running and trying to start a family, can having a training cycle impact fertility slash options for training when trying for a baby? So obviously the limitation when answering these questions is that like, that's all the information that I have, right? So the reason that I haven't really discussed, uh, you know, training and fertility is because I'm not a medical professional. It's not really my wheelhouse. But here's what I'm going to say to that, because this is a question I've gotten enough at this point, and by enough, I mean probably about a half a dozen times over the past year or so, that I feel like it's like, you know what, instead of just trying to fob off and say, you need to talk to some, you know what, here's what I'm going to say. Obviously, yes, if your uh, training is imbalanced with your body's ability to recover from the stress you're putting on it, that will absolutely impact your ability to have a baby. Um, Because what we know about the body and the stress that training puts on it, the balance of stress and recovery. If your body doesn't have enough resources to do the things that it wants to do, uh, it's not gonna let you do the other extra stuff, right? And the extras in this situation are, um, uh, you know, reproduction, right? We're not going to be able to be as fertile during times of extraordinary stress because our body's like, hey, I'm just trying to stay alive here. There's no way I can like bring another life into the world at the same time. So yes, it is entirely possible that if you have the improper balance of training and under recovery, which typically means that extremely hard training and or doesn't you can or under recovery meaning inadequate fuel, aka food, you're not eating enough to support the training that you're doing, you're not sleeping enough, you're not managing your stress properly that can definitely impact your body's ability to be in a place where it is amenable to hosting life inside it. What that balance looks like for you though is going to be hyper-independent on the individual. I know plenty of women who have like just gotten pregnant during a really intense marathon training cycle without even trying. And I also know women who have had to take a couple years to really reduce their training, focus on eating enough, maybe restoring menstrual cycle uh, regularity um, to then be able to uh, conceive. So this is gonna be hyper-dependent on you. Here's what I would say. If an athlete came to me and said, or one of my athletes hypothetically said, hey, I'm trying to get pregnant. (laughs) What should my training look like? I would say, well, if you actively know you're trying to conceive, I probably wouldn't start a race-specific training cycle right now, right? (laughs) Like, I'm trying to get pregnant. Um, Let's start marathon training, right? Be realistic here. You know, if you have this plan for what you want your family planning to look like, then you need to plan your training around that too. And that's going to be training that is not as high volume as it would be in a race-specific training cycle. Probably doesn't have a lot of intensity, the same intensity proportion as it would in a race-specific training cycle, right? So if you're really focusing more on that, you know, rest, digest, nurture, create a loving environment to host life in, that's not going to look like a lot of intense training. Now, of course, there are huge benefits to running that don't have to do about just chasing performance, right? We do it for our general health, we do it for our mental health, or that kind of thing. So it's really important that you personally find the balance that works for you and your health, whatever you're trying to do and wherever you've come from in your training uh, to make sure that, you know, hey, right now I'm not really focused on the super crazy stuff, you know? I'm not uh, not throwing my body against the wall. I'm not trying to do the craziest things here. What I am trying to do is get pregnant, right? And being able to maybe take a step back in your training and make sure the other stuff is really stuff you're on top of too, right? Like I keep saying, under recovery, right? Are you eating enough? Are you sleeping enough? Um, those things really matter. Just for our body's general homeostasis <laughs> and we want our bodies to be happy. All right, next question. How to add an extra day of running each week without overtraining? 
Oh man, I have so many follow-up questions to this. How many days are you currently running? <laughs> what are you currently training for? How long have you been running? How much volume are you currently running? What's the training intensity distribution of your schedule look like? Okay, when I, so anybody who has is familiar with my training philosophy knows, obviously I preach the importance of keeping your easy days easy. A majority of your training in most cases is gonna be below your aerobic threshold, right? I am also generally what I consider a high frequency training coach, right? If I can get you to run five days instead of four, and it makes sense, yeah, we're gonna try to run five days instead of four. How do we add that extra day? Wherever we're training, are we adding a third day? Are we adding a sixth day, right? Wherever we are. Typically, whenever you add an additional session of running in your week, that session, the new session is short and easy. So let's say, for example, you are currently running three days per week. You have uh, one day that's a workout day, you have one day that's kind of like a regular easy run, you know, 45 to 60 minutes, and you have a long run on the weekend. Well, if you were to add a fourth day, I would say I want you to add a day of sh- a short easy effort day. It basically becomes a recovery run day, 30 to 45 minutes of easy effort running. Um, depending on your overall training volume, right? If you're currently running five days a week and you're running like 60 miles a week, yeah, that that additional day, again, would be a short, easy effort session, but the duration of that session, how much volume you cover in that specific session would be appropriate to your current training volume. So the best way to avoid overtraining is to make sure that you are doing a lot of your training in your easy effort zone, and you're also eating enough food to support your training and getting enough sleep. I know it sounds simple, but sometimes it's very hard to do. That's how you add another day in your training without overdoing it in most cases, right? And so actually, if you followed any one of my training plans, you'll realize in a lot of the, especially the level zero, level one plans, um, sometimes it'll the plan will start and it'll have three days or four days and then and that there'll be another day in your week that is designated an easy effort aerobic cross training session. And as the plan progresses, that easy effort aerobic cross training session actually becomes a running day. It becomes, instead of you know 45 minutes of easy effort aerobic, easy effort aerobic cross training, it's 30 to 45 minutes of running. So that's, that's a really good example of a natural transition into adding that additional day, short, easy effort, and then you can work your way up from there. All right, next question. Thoughts on recovery sandals. What do they, what to look for? Do they work? Are they worth it? There is absolutely zero peer-reviewed research out there that says that wearing a recovery sandal is somehow magically beneficial. Are they comfortable? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> I think Ufos has actually like sponsored some research, right? It's like, who's doing the research? But yes. Is wearing a comfortable shoe after you run uh, going to feel good? And, and sometimes feeling good is just all you need to help your recovery? Of course. You know, I'd much rather wear a pair of Birkenstocks or a pair of Ufos than like a pair of high heels for recovery. Like, duh. Does wearing the recovery sandal itself... Um, like confer some innately superior recovery benefit compared to not wearing the sandal? No. Does it feel good? Sure. Do you need to buy them? No. Can you buy them because you want to? Yes. Right? I'm not going to tell you not to buy them. They're not magic though, right? They're just really comfortable shoes. Nothing wrong with that. This is a good question that I've actually, I have like three drafts of a post on this. But I'm glad that the person asked this question because now I can finally talk about it. I'll probably still do a post on it. Do running surfaces matter? Concrete, 
sand track? Do they prevent injuries? Okay. Contrary to popular belief, there is no single running surface that is um, correlated with a with an increased injury risk. And you might be surprised to hear this. Running on concrete is not innately better or worse for you than running on dirt. Running on a track versus running on grass, running on trails versus running on asphalt, right? There is no one like, oh, don't run on that. You're going to get injured. What we know about the research, and this is actually pretty cool and somebody who is more well-versed in the physiology and biomechanics of our of our uh, gait cycle and our uh, lower limb will be able to go into more detail about this, I'm sure, on a future episode. But um, you have to think of your legs like giant elastic bands that are, um, when you hit the ground, are storing energy and then releasing energy with every step, like kind of springs, like we're all kind of like pogo sticks. Now, the key to being able to store and release a lot of energy is the stiffness of the elastic band, right? We all know that those super thick rubber bands are a lot, store a lot more energy than like an old stretched out floppy rubber band, right? Um, And what happens in our legs entirely subconsciously, your body does this in unfathomably small amount of time but your your lower leg can actually tune its stiffness uh, depending on the surface that you're running at so actually softer surfaces require higher ground impact forces when we land on it because so much of the ground absorbs uh, the energy some of the energy from our foot strike And so that means that our lower leg uh, naturally has to be much stiffer in order to kind of counteract the softness of the ground. And so if you've been told, oh, you know, running on hard surfaces is really bad for your legs, that first of all is like, it's one of those things where it's like, that's really an oversimplification and that's not really true. And even when it is true, that's not really still true. you interestingly enough one of the best ways to in the later stages of rehab of some uh stress fractures is actually to make sure that you're running in a relatively uncushioned shoe on hard surfaces because that your ground impact forces are lower compared to running on soft surface in a highly cushioned shoe and that can actually um the lower stress of the ground impact force and the the your leg doesn't have to be as stiff actually can help remodel the bone better. Do not quote me on this, right? But the research on this is is pretty cool, unequivocal in that no one single ground type is better or worse for you in general than any other. So if you're worried about your knees and asphalt, what I'd say to you is that you should work on strengthening and making sure your biomechanics are good before you then only go exclusively run on trails. Kit is running on a variety of terrain beneficial for you as a runner overall? Yes. If you have the ability to get a wide variety of terrain into your running, that will just that's just better for you because you can move in different ways, you can challenge your body in different ways in these tiny tiny different ways that um 
you know, changing your leg stiffness, being having to move laterally, all of this stuff just kind of makes you better overall since running is so repetitive and so single plane and one plane of, you know, doing the same thing over and over again in one plane of motion. Anytime you can put in some variety into that, it's going to just make you better overall. Of course, caveat, avoid huge drastic changes. Like if you're only used to, you know, training on cement, don't then go do all your training on the trail. Like, oh, I was running 40 miles a week on the asphalt and I'm going 40 miles a week on the trail. Like, okay, work it in slowly. Big changes are typically, giant drastic changes <laughs> typically end up poorly. But yes, uh, so here's the here's the long and short of it. There's no single surface that is going to be better or worse for you than any other in general. Don't worry about the asphalt. If you like running on trails or soft surfaces, do it. If you stick to cement, okay, do it. Like you're okay. Um, and in general, yes, getting some variety of terrain into your training can be beneficial overall. Although what that looks like for you will depend on what you have available to you, what you like to do and the kind of running that you're trying to focus on. All right, this is a this is a huge question. Thanks, Michelle. Biggest question you've learned as a runner and a coach. <laughs> Two different things. I am a runner, I am also a coach. Um, so these are actually would be separate lessons. If I only learned, learned one lesson, you know, I think that would be a little bit broad. I consider myself um, a coach and an educator and an athlete separately. Now, there are a lot of lessons, obviously, that cross over my experience and the um, my human experience as an athlete and what I've done in my life just as a person, obviously, colors who I am as a coach because that's just called being a human, right? <laughs> but um, the biggest lesson I've learned, actually, you know what? I take that back. I take that back. Maybe there is one lesson here. No, I think there's two. All right. As a runner, the biggest lesson I've learned as a runner is that it's going to take longer than you think. <laughs> whatever it is, I know for me as a runner, whatever it is, it's going to take longer than I think or that I want it to. I'm actually fairly um, famous at underestimating the amount of time, oh, no, I'm sure I'll be able to do that in X amount of time, right? And that comes to the expectation thing. And I think we have this expectation uh, as, as, especially as runners, especially when we learn to do things, quote unquote, correctly, that, oh, but I'm doing it, I'm doing it right now. I'm doing all the correct things now. It should happen. And it should happen now. It should happen quickly. It should happen immediately. It should happen within the time frame that I want it to happen on. And that's not always going to be true. Now, there are long ways around, but there are no shortcuts. And so sometimes things just take as long as they take. And uh, sometimes that means that even when you're really fit, you're not going to get the race result that you want. It means that sometimes you're just going to have to lose fitness because that's this phase of training you're currently in or life happened or whatever, Right. So yeah, that's the biggest lesson I've learned as a runner. As a coach, I love love being a coach. It's so much fun. It's so fulfilling and rewarding to work with people. The biggest lesson I've learned as a coach is that, uh, here's the thing. Obviously, my account's called Running Explained. I like to talk. I like to, I like to, I like to be right. I like to learn things and I like to share them with you. The biggest lesson I've learned as a coach is that 
the listening is way more important than the talking. I really have to hear what my athletes are telling me or not telling me. I have to learn to, you know, kind of get to know them as people. The listening is way, way, way more important than the talking. You know, if your coach isn't listening to you, that's something that's, they're not coaching you, right? They're just telling you things um, that may or may not be, you know, based on what you're experiencing or related to what you're actually going through. Now, of course, listening is a skill that we always try to get better at. I still like to explain things. But yeah, I think the biggest lesson I've learned as a coach is that it's really about the listening, not the telling. Somebody asked me about getting a tattoo, planning on a tattoo on my thigh to commemorate my marathons. Any idea on recovery time? I have no tattoos. I have no idea. Ask your tattoo artist about this. I would assume that if it's on the inner thigh, it's probably going to be a bit more recovery time than your outer thigh. I know people have gotten full sleeves and are like back in the gym a couple days later. I think it depends on, you know, how fast the superficial stuff heals, right? How long you're supposed to keep the, keep the saran wrap on, that kind of thing. Um, also depends on how much it hurts. <laughs> Great question. What's it like working with a running coach? Speaking of coaching, are there different formats, timelines? So I consider one-on-one coaching to be really, it is, it is the most personalized, most unique uh, commitment that you can make your, to yourself as a runner, an investment into your own potential, whatever that means to you right? Not, you don't need to be gunning for a BQ or an OTQ or have a hyper, to want to work with a running coach. You can work with a running coach just because you want to have somebody help you. That's okay. I work with plenty of runners whose goals are to just become a better runner, whatever that means for them, whether it's running their first half marathon, running their first marathon, progressing from run walk to entirely running, and yes, I work with people who have really lofty performance goals too, but that's the thing is that there a running coach can help you do whatever you you are specifically trying to do whatever that is. A running coach is here to help make you into a better runner, to help you take the shortest possible path, right? No shortcuts, to maximize the time you have available to help you navigate all the kind of random questions that you might have. And honestly, for a lot of my athletes who are crazy busy with the rest of the obligations in their life, it is one less thing they have to worry about that they can just be like, has my coach told me to do this, right? Hey, this is what I'm doing today. I don't have to wake up and wonder, God, what should I do today for my, for my run? I don't know, right? Takes the worry off completely. And of course we do schedule modifications. It's feedback. It's training that really dials in. The more you work with, the longer that you work with your coach, the more and more individualized your training becomes because we really get to know you as a person. So is there a timeline? Yeah, I'm looking, ideally I want to work with people who are on a long, we're here for the long haul. Long distance running is a long distance game. Can I help you reach your goal in four months? Maybe. Four months isn't that very long. Do we really want to look at those one, three, five-year goals in general? Yeah. Do you need to work with your coach? Do you use it a five-year commitment? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the longer that you work with your coach, the better they'll get to know you and the more specific your training can become. Notwithstanding the fact that in, for a lot of the things we're trying to do as endurance runners, it takes a couple months just to build the base so we can even start the first part of our work together, much less the multi-cycle super compensation positive curve that we're trying to aim for. What does it look like? Yeah, so every run coach will be a little bit different um, in terms of what they offer, how we do it. I'll tell you we do it at Running Explained. 
one-on-one coaching comes in one of two flavors. The basics are the same. 100% individualized coaching training program for you in Final Surge, which is an app. Exactly what to do. Warm up, cool down, you know, basic strength, mobility, your run. What your run is for that day if you're cross training right it's it's based on what you are trying to accomplish your short and long-term goals what you your specific schedule actually looks like week to week and how you're progressing right so if you did xyz in last week's workout i'll review that maybe i'll make some changes to what is happening this week right it's all based on what's actually happening instead of a 16-week block of training a couple weeks at a time tweak it as we go it's really fun to see and uh, feedback, of course, is the biggest one. Every coach, uh, athlete relationship at its core, one-on-one coaching is here's your, here's your schedule. You do the runs. I'll give you feedback, right? So weekly feedback, questions answered when you need them, uh, more support, you know, the premium coaching level, which is a kids, I consider our, our high-touch uh, package is being able to kind of reach out to your coach whenever you might need them, texting, email, schedule a call. You have a lot of questions or you just want a lot of feedback. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody's different. Cover the basics of running nutrition. Talk about form. We do some strength training, right? But at the core of it, it's about helping you understand how, what kind of runner that you are, how to get the most out of yourself, when to push, when to back off. That's a huge one. When to do less, not more, right? But also then believe in you, even when you don't believe in yourself. If your coach tells you, I think you could probably run this. And you're like, oh my God, I didn't, didn't think that would be possible. That's kind of a cool feeling, right? To have somebody else objectively be able to look at you and say, I think you're capable of doing this. Race planning, right? Strategy, short and long-term development. Our classic coaching, right? Called classic for a reason. So that's weekly feedback, written support. We do pre-race strategy calls, you know, post-race debrief. Uh, and so if you're looking for a coach, like I said, I have six amazing coaches on my team. It, it really is that next level of investment, whatever that means to you and where you're trying to get to. Maybe you are trying to achieve a really lofty performance goal. Um, and w- like I said, whatever that means for you, for some people that is going to be a time qualifier, for some people it's going to be finishing their first race. So I think a one-on-one coach, you know, just because you know what you're doing doesn't mean you're going to be really great at coaching yourself. T- coaching yourself takes a lot of mental energy. I objectively know what I'm doing and I don't coach myself because I cannot be objective with myself. And also like, I don't want to have to worry about my own training when I'm worrying about other, other people's training. (laughs) Um, It's really nice to see, we joke about coaches who have coaches, like most coaches, you should have a coach, right? There are very few people who can um, properly self-coach, especially when they're also working with other athletes. And so, yeah, we joke that, you know, our, the coaching family, like my coach has a coach and she, her coach, she has a coach and she has a coach and she has a coach and it's just coaches all the way up and coaches all the way down. If you're not necessarily looking for that level of commitment or support, totally get it, right? One-on-one coaching is a big step, but maybe you're looking for a bit more support for upcoming race and that's when group coaching, I think is a really great way of dipping your toe in the water. You get a lot of support, a ton of education, training plan, and help to prepare specifically for your race. But it is a time-bound commitment, right? It's just based around when your upcoming race is, your upcoming marathon or half marathon. So if you are interested in coaching but not entirely sure about the one-on-one coaching commitment, definitely check out group coaching. I think it's a really good option for a lot of people.
All right. I definitely have talked about this question before. How much less should I run versus what's on the plan if I play one to two hours of another sport? Okay. I need everybody to take a step back and remember that exercise counts. (laughs) Your total training load counts towards your total training load, even when it's not running. I love this question because it recognizes that you can't just add that if you are playing something for like playing two hours of soccer every week, obviously that's going to affect your running in some capacity. So if you conceptualize your individual training sessions, your runs, and then compare that to the other thing that you are planning to do or want to do, measure them up, right? What are you playing basketball, right? Are, is it is it like high intensity, short? Is it, uh, you know, are you doing a lot of sprinting and recovering? Is it a lot of kind of maybe you're playing five-a-side soccer, but everybody's kind of pretty slow, so you're maybe zone two, zone three, right? So is it the equivalent of a, a longer, easier effort session? Is it the equivalent of a interval-type session, super high intensity, but you have recovery between the intervals? You know, what is it that you're doing? How tired are you, <laughs> right? Typically, when we're talking about one to two hours of another sport, that would probably replace at least one moderate length run on your weekly schedule, depending on your total training load. If you're only running three days a week, um, it shouldn't replace any of your runs. If you're running six days a week, it definitely should replace one of your runs, maybe two, depending on the intensity, right? So this is going to be depends, Uh, hyper, hyper, hyper depends. Everything counts, right? Everything counts. I'm not saying you shouldn't do things that aren't running, but I'm saying is that you have to remember everything in your week that you do counts towards the stress that your body's experiencing and your ability to recover. And that's what we're really trying to pay attention to. Okay, I got like five questions about stress fractures. Guys, I'm not a physical therapist. You don't want me answering questions about your injury because I didn't go to school for that. I can talk a good game, but I don't know. Here's what I do know about stress fractures. You need actual medical attention. You need an actual medically guided return to run plan. And if you have a stress fracture, you need to be working with a sports physical therapist for your rehab. Now, what that looks like for you, depending on the severity of your stress fracture, will depend, right? But that's not something that a non-qualified sport medical professional should be guiding you on. The first step in stress fracture rehab is rest. The second is a graded return to uh, activity protocol. So you'll typically go through a series of single leg hopping, jumping type uh, assessments after several weeks or more of inactivity or not, you know, putting weight or using the broken bone area. After you have passed that single leg, the hopping assessment, you are then typically cleared to do what's called a return to run injury protocol, right? So this is a sports medicine guideline return to run protocol where you run and walk in intervals and your running intervals are very, very short to start, like 30 seconds long. You have to be able to complete two separate sessions separated by one non-running day without any issues with pain or increasing discomfort before you can then increase your run and decrease your walk interval. Typically, these return to run sessions are limited to 30 total minutes of activity 
in many situations, the first session is 30 minutes, sorry, 30 minutes total, 30 seconds of walking, four and a, <clears throat> got this backwards, 30 seconds of running, four and a half minutes of walking, repeated six times. You do that once, you take a rest day, you do it again, all good, cool. You take another rest day. The next session, one minute of running, four minutes of walking for 30 total minutes. You see how it goes from there? Depending on the severity of your stress fracture, you can do a, a more expedited version of this. But when we're talking about returning from injury, bone breaking injury, man, oh man, it's way better to be cautious than aggressive on that kind of stuff. So what do we do if we have a stress fracture? We go visit a sports-specific physical therapist. We ask them about our return to run protocol guidelines. There are many great ones. The uh, Colorado University has one. William & Mary College has one um, that I reference and I use in, uh, in my professional life. But that is what you do. Stress fracture, rest. Hopping assessment, can I return to run? If yes, then you do the graded return to run, run, walk protocol. After you clear that and you're up to 30 minutes of continuous running without any discomfort, then you can go back to rebuilding your regular running training. And if you have recurring stress fractures, that's a huge red flag that something is wrong. Typically, recurring stress fractures are a sign of reds, red S, underfueling. Uh, issues with bone porosity, right? Nutrient deficiencies. Not good to be in a place where you have multiple stress fractures. If you are getting multiple stress fractures, what I would do is this. I would talk to a sports dietitian and I would work with a coach. Please don't break your bones any more than you need to. And there is no need to break any of them. Okay, good. Hyper-specific question. I love this. Are long-run marathon pace workouts suitable for all? Anything to avoid? Long-run marathon pace workouts are certainly not suitable for all people. Absolutely not. No way would I put a just-finished marathoner in a long-run workout with marathon pace miles in there. My God, they'd die. They'd probably be able to finish the run, but they'd need a week and a half to recover from it. It's not the point of marathon training. Are long run marathon pace workouts suitable for all? Uh, Typically, the more experienced the runner, and this can be either experienced in, when we talk about experience, it typically means higher volume. Although I do know some outliers who run maybe three to four times a week in their marathon training, but do very high volumes of cross training as well. So their total training volume is actually higher than if they were just running, but a lot of it is a low impact right? You can't really get away with becoming a great marathon if you're only running three days a week. (laughs) So um, long run marathon pace workouts. Here's what I typically do. I would never ask anybody to run a marathon, a long run. So even if you do include marathon pace work in your long run, it's always only a part of your long run. You would never, ever, ever run the entirety of any long run at marathon pace unless your marathon pace is exactly the same as your easy effort pace, right? No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about if your marathon pace lies above your aerobic threshold. Typically what we do is once we get up into what I call the roughly the mid-teens, here's what a long, a, a long run progression may look like for a moderate volume runner. 
let's say we're eight to 10 weeks out from their goal marathon, they're running approximately 45 to 50 miles per week already. Their long runs are in the mid-teens. We're doing, let's say, 14 or 15 miles without issue. What I would then do is maybe I will fast finish. Hey, yeah, 15 miles, last three, pick it up. Let's pick it up. Zone three, right? Marathon effort, a little fast finish. See how it goes. Goes well, cool. The next run, the next long run, you just increase the volume. All easy effort. And then we take that, let's say we go to 16 miles. And this is, you typically would increase your long runs more than one mile week over week, but that's not the point here. Let's say we did 14, 14 with a fast finish, right? Next next uh, increase, we're doing 16, 16 easy effort. If that goes well, 16 with some goal pace. And maybe it's, you know, two, three miles. Maybe we're doing some, you know, uh, mile repeats within the long run workout. Maybe it's a shorter section. Maybe we'll just do three or four miles, right? Depending on the experience of the runner, how aggressive their goal pace is, where their current fitness is, right? So you would always do, can I run the distance easy effort first before I add any intensity? Now, for a lot of marathoners, goal pace is not appropriate because they don't have the endurance to support the distance, much less the endurance to support the distance with intensity in their training. Now, if you're asking, how do I know? Okay, is this, you know, if you're running less than 40 miles per week, you know, unless you're a very seasoned marathoner who's doing a lot of high volume cross training as well. If you're running 40 miles per week, your goal is endurance, okay? Not speed. You have to build the endurance where you can add the speed, right? So that's what we talk about. You have to have a certain volume of training in place before you can start adding intensity, especially in your long runs, because remember, the easy effort long run is a marathon specific workout. It is a multi-hour aerobic event. The marathon is a multi-hour aerobic event. Training your long runs at easy effort is a marathon specific workout. And like I said, you can make it spicy as you become more experienced and at higher volume by adding some marathon pace. But even then, be really cautious. I think, you know, if talk about people who are doing 20 mile long runs with 12 miles at marathon pace. That's hefty because it comes at the end of what I assume is a high volume week that also contains intensity, right? Your long runs don't occur in a vacuum. Your long runs are the culmination of your entire training week. And so if you're like, oh, but why can't I just do like 18 miles at marathon pace? I mean, you could, maybe you could, maybe you couldn't, you might be able to, you would then need so much recovery you might actually end up detrained before you could then progressively, you know, increase in your next uh, phase of training. It's all about stressing your body just enough so you get the stimu- the benefits, the adaptations, but you can recover quickly enough that you can do it over and over in most days of the week. If I do something so freaking challenging on my long run that I'm basically not recovered until the following weekend, I've essentially lost a day of training. Going harder is not is not the goal here, right? If all it took were to, to become a great athlete were to train as hard as possible for like one day, don't you think that's what we'd be doing by now? No. So absolutely long run workouts at marathon pace are not appropriate for everybody. If you are a lower volume runner or a less experienced runner, um, I would avoid them and you pro- you typically won't see long runs with marathon pace in them in traditional coaching schedules 
until you're getting what I call moderate volume with marathon training, which in the context of the marathon is like 50 to 60 miles per week. Okay. Good question here. How to better cope with and stay motivated while being one of the slow ones? 10 KPR of 109. First of all, you these questions break my heart because you have decided that whatever you are running is slow and slow is bad. Therefore, insert the conclusion here. Fast and slower relative. And the very, very cool thing about what we do as runners is that we, for those of us who have performance goals, we do this because we believe we're capable of getting better. And the nice thing about being a runner is that kind of what the lesson I said about I took from being a runner, right? It takes a while for that stuff to actually happen. But you actually see changes occur on a short-term basis relatively rapidly. How many of you got hooked as runners because you realized that every day you went for a run when you were brand new, you could run farther than the time before? Or within the first six months of running, you like dropped crazy amounts of time off a race, right? So how to better cope with and stay motivated being one of those ones. First of all, I need you to have a mindset shift about what you're currently doing. You have run a 10K in 109 when most people couldn't walk one. We're talking about the average Western person couldn't even finish a 10K at any pace. I want you to start framing what you have accomplished as successes instead of tinging them with failure. Right? So that's really what's what's happening here. You've decided that what you've currently accomplished is somehow not motivating. When I assume that this is when you say PR, it means that the first time or the when you have uh, you've run other 10k's that weren't this fast. Right? If you if your friend came up to you and said this, what would you say to them? Oh my god, you're right. Jeez. Yeah, I can imagine it's terribly so hard to say motivate when you're so slow. No, that should be so motivated. First of all, dick move. Don't be a dick to your friends. It should be so motivating to say this is where I am right now, but I am on a journey to go somewhere else. How if you're only here's the other thing though. If you're only motivated by getting faster, you gotta look outside the box. Because there will come a day, we talked about this on a recent episode with the great Tina Muir that your relationship with running needs to change because there will come a day when your fastest times are behind you. Nothing you do will be able to get them back. And if you've based your entire running persona, motivation, reward system on only getting faster, any time that you hit a speed bump in that journey or age inevitably catches up with you, what then? What then? If you if your only purpose for being a runner is to become a faster runner, that's you're going to be really disappointed when father time whacks you over the head or you get injured or you get sick or you life happens and you take 6 months off. Like that's that's what I'm saying. Yes, both things can be true. We can be proud of where we are and we can want to get better. 
and that's okay. I don't think there's any coping skills needed here. I think there's a, a, a really honest conversation about what it is that you're really trying to do here. What does this actually mean to you? I know people who would murder for a 109 10K PR. I really do. I know people who would who would kill to be able to run a 10K period. Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel better, but I'm saying is that there is always something to compare yourself to, right? You just have to decide whether you're going to play the game or not. Am I going to be proud of my accomplishments and still want to get better and both things will be true at the same time? Yes. Right? Am I going to look at my time and say, geez, God, I'm so slow. This is ridiculous. Because that person over there is faster, right? Which one is more... Which one makes you feel better? Self-loathing only gets you so far. Anger only gets you to a certain point. It's much more self-fulfilling and it feels a lot better to support yourself. Believe in yourself and be like, yeah, I am my greatest cheerleader. Let's go crush this. This may be where I am right now, but it's not where I'm going to stay. All right, next question. How to transition from run walk to all running or how to know when you're ready to transition? I talked about this extensively on my episode on run walk, which is episode 18 of this season, season two, which is this is specifically why I advocate for using heart rate based run walk. If your goal is to transition from run walk into continuous running, using heart rate is the way that you should, I personally believe that you should be doing this. Because it allows you to naturally over time spend more time running and less time walking as your aerobic fitness increases. Okay. That's the key is that naturally over time. So if you are running, if you are currently utilizing time-based run walk intervals, but your goal is to run, become somebody who can run continuously, those time-based intervals are not doing you any favors because They're holding you back on days when you have better fitness and maybe they're cramping your style and making you work too hard on days when you just need to take it even easier. So go back, listen to episode 18, all about run walk, and you're going to hopefully learn some some, uh, guidelines and lessons. And if you're still having questions, I definitely recommend my heart rate zones masterclass. You can actually understand how to set your heart rate zones for you personally whether or not you're doing run walk or whatever else we want to do in your training. If you're trying to use heart rate in your training, you actually have to know how your zones are are going to be set up. So I definitely recommend the heart rate zones masterclass as well. Here's an interesting question. How can I maintain my running condition if I'm on a long break slash want to stop progressing? Okay. So, um, this is a really, Again, when like I have some follow-up questions, I'm going to have to make some assumptions here. How can I make, so you want to maintain your fitness, but you're taking a break slash want to stop progressing. So what I'm hearing here in this question, or what I, what I hear are two conflicting things. I want to maintain what, what I have and I don't want to get any fitter for whatever reason, right? Okay. Um, yes. So maintenance is a, uh, is something you can do, right? So it's different from base building. It's it's kind of maybe like a, not even an off season is actually where you shed fatigue and you actually detrain intentionally just a little bit. Yeah, maintenance is totally a phase of training one can engage in. 
everybody's maintenance is going to look a little bit different depending on how fit you are, right? If you traditionally run four to five days a week, 35 to 40 miles, your maintenance phase might look like three to four days a week, 25 to 30 miles, right? If you currently run 60 miles a week, if you then drop down to 15 miles a week, you're going to detrain because you need to stimulate your body enough to maintain your current fitness. If you're not even stimulating your body to the bare minimum, you're going to lose fitness. Maybe you don't care, right? So everybody's maintenance sweet spot is going to be different. And the point of maintenance, again, is to maintain, not to build, not to appreciably lose nor gain fitness. The average runner, I would say, anecdotally composite based on the athletes that I work with, for most people, if you're running three to four days a week in the 20 to 25 mile per range, 20 to 25 mile per week range, where traditionally you run 30 to 35 miles per week, yeah, 20 to 25 miles per week is going to be maintenance for a lot of people. 10 to 15 miles per week is going to be maintenance for other people. 40 to 50 miles per week is going to be maintenance for other people, right? So you can see how it depends. So it is, it is, I consider maintenance less than your base. I know this is a confusing concept. You can listen to the episode, season one with Nick Klistov, we talk about base building, right? So your running base, apart from your aerobic base, which is kind of like a, it's harder to measure, right? The aerobic base, but it actually is what it is. Like how strong is your aerobic base? Um, your running base is the, basically your, your base volume is the number of miles you can kind of go run without any issue. You can kind of run that for a week over week without any issue, right? It's challenging enough. You have some intensity, probably not too much intensity, just a little bit. I would consider maintenance be- slightly below your base. So if you're a person who says, And if you're like, I don't even know what my base is, don't worry about it, right? It's okay. It's okay. Um, If you're a person who says, I mean, yeah, my base is usually like, you know, I'm in the the 30, 35 mile per week range, right? Your maintenance is going to be slightly below that. Um, I would say base is probably in the high end of maintenance. You can definitely, there is such a thing as doing too little, right? So it depends on where you are, how long you've been doing this, how much you currently run, how much you have time to run. Are you required to go into a maintenance phase? No, of course not. Um, maintenance is, I'd say not, not that it's not often used, it's just not often something that we focus on and we talk about the context of periodizing your training year in macro cycles. Um, maintenance is, yeah, maintenance is really great when you want to kind of just hang out right? You've got other stuff to do. You're not trying to lose fitness. Not trying. You're not trying to gain fitness. You're trying to maintain. Okay. How much are you current, used to running? How much do you typically run? How much do you have time for? Something is always better than nothing, right? If you can run and you want to run, you should run. Not saying that every phase of your entire life needs to contain phases of running. It may not, but maintenance. Yeah. Nothing wrong with a little maintenance. All right, here's another injury question. We're wrapping up towards the end of our episode. How to, So many injury questions, you guys. I worry about you. How to progressively return from a minor injury? One to two weeks without running cross-training only. Okay, if you have been... Uh, I don't know what this injury is, right? I don't know what kind of treatment you got. Generally speaking, 
If you cannot run for one to two full weeks, that concerns me. That's not minor. Let me tell you what I consider a minor running injury. Something that's tweaky, but you can still run. You have to reduce your volume a little bit and drop the intensity, but you can still run. A minor injury, you can still run. A moderate injury requires a couple weeks off. A major injury requires a couple months off. That's my unscientific Elizabeth scale of running injury severity. Sorry, that's an ace cube. All right, minor injury. No, let's say moderate, moderately minor injury. Yeah, slowly, obviously, right? Uh, man, a concern. Uh, my my uh, my default is always like talk to a physical therapist because I don't know. Okay, there is a, a guideline that I posted about returning to running after COVID. It's called the 50 30 20 10 guideline. I know it's a mouthful. I think this is a reasonable guideline for a lot of people to return after periods of time off, especially when they're trying to be cautious in the return. 50 30 20 10. What were you running before? Start your first week back 50% of that. If you were running 40 miles per week, 20 miles, all easy, right? 50, 30, 20, 10, all easy. And then it actually, it should be called 50, 70, 80, 90. (laughs) The following week, you bump up to 70% of what you used to run. Then you go to 80% of your previous volume. And then you go to 90% of your previous volume. And then I probably take a down week, right? Because that's a lot of weeks to build consecutively. And then, and then you can, uh, and then you can be back to full training volume. Don't mess with injuries. It's way better to fully heal them rather than to start training too early and possibly end up with something that just lingers and lingers and never, ever, ever goes away. I am all for working hard. I am all for pushing yourself, but you have to know when to push and when to back off. Another pitch for getting a coach, right? Most runners left to their own devices do really unnecessarily difficult things to their bodies when if they just learned how to when to back off how to back off that's what actually can slingshot them forward so that that hard work really counts and they're really making the gains that they want to get all right final question this is an easy softball one best water carrier that doesn't leak bulge budge chafe feel bulky I cannot speak highly enough about Nathan Sports brand hydration vests. I personally own two of them and a water carrier bottle. Um, I think a hydration vest is an essential piece of gear for endurance runners, especially ones who live where it gets warm. (laughs) Okay, so like most people. Um, I've even raced in them. I ran a marathon PR. I ran two marathon PRs wearing a hydration vest. So yes, I personally really like Nathan brand hydration vests. Your first couple runs with a hydration vest may feel a little funky just because you've never worn one before. The great, amazing thing about humans is that we are endlessly adaptable. You will forget that it's there, okay? Just keep going. All right, that's the listener Q&A episode for this week. I hope you guys have a really happy holiday, however you celebrate. And I cannot wait to see you all in the new year. Again, any questions about the fun stuff we're doing with training for Running Explained, you can check out the website, runningexplained.co. One-on-one coaching, group coaching, training plans. We've got it all, baby. See you next time.
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.